You're listening to Radio Looks Lucid. I'm your host, Steve Matthews. Thanks for joining me for episode 82. The title of tonight's episode is The Truth is Truth is the First Casualty of War, the Conflict Between Russia and Ukraine. Well, thanks for joining me here this evening. Uh, again, I'm going to have to apologize to you. I, I don't think I had the opportunity to really prepare for this program as much as I would like to. I had a another podcast interview that I had to do earlier today, and I just got done doing the edit, and it's running kind of late here, but I still wanted to get a podcast in for you, so I, I, I'm going to do the best that I can here tonight, and uh, we'll we'll see what happens. I, I think they've got some, some things that are at least mildly interesting, maybe. Uh, there's certainly some interesting things going on in the world here right now, so why don't we get down to business and uh, talk about some of that. But, hey, you know, before I do that, my just observation for the week is, you know, it's starting to look a bit like spring. For the first time here today, I went, went out, I took a walk this afternoon and went down to the, the lake to Winton Woods and took a little walk around. And, you know, I saw some signs of spring. The first one I ran across was there were a couple of uh, Canada geese out there on the walking path. Now, when it comes to, to harbingers of spring, I would say Canada geese are probably my least favorite. Um, you know, those aren't those are just nasty birds. I mean, those things are are aggressive. They're big, and and they definitely have a go at you. You know, I remember a few years ago there was a nesting pair that decided to take up residence right at the front door of the office building where I worked, and they would actually attack people as they would come in and out of out of the building. And I don't know, they did something to to kind of shush them away, so they they finally got rid of them. But then I, I don't know if it was the same pair of, of birds or not, but then they went and they nested. So there were some of these Canada geese, they nested in this culvert, this drainage ditch right next to the parking lot. And I go out and I take a walk around the building for, for breaks just to get a little exercise. And, you know, it would invariably I'd go out there in the spring and uh, one of these birds would pop up out of the, out of the culvert and, and start uh, following me, hissing. You know, it'd be all, you know, and I could hear the feet tap, 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 tap behind me. You know, and, um, I don't think I ever wanted to choke out a bird as much as I did that thing. Uh, just nasty tempered things. And they, they go around and they make a big mess, if you know what I mean. They live these little green presents uh, around for us all. And we get to dodge those as well. So, yeah, I wasn't super happy to see the Canada geese back. If they, they stayed in Canada or wherever it is they come from, I'd, I'd be quite happy with that. Another sign of uh, spring that I noticed, too, when I was down here on the lake today, there was no ice on the lake. Now, the last, really for most of the year up to this point, every time I've gone down here, it's the, the surface of the lake's been iced over. There was no ice in sight today. We had a few days this week where it was around 60 degrees, and uh, it was it was in the low 30s here today, but that 60-some degree weather over a few days, I guess, took care of it all. So that was pretty nice to see. So there was no ice. That's That's progress. And then finally, we've got some daffodils that are coming up here around the house. So those are always some of the first flowers. That and crocuses, the first ones to come up. Now, I had somebody on Facebook tell me, oh, well, they're in full bloom where I live. Well... I guess this this per, this person lives in Georgia, so they're they're kind of ahead of us, and we're kind of uh, bringing up the rear here in Ohio. So so they're probably a a few weeks uh, ahead of us on the whole spring thing. But anyway, you can see it, it's not spring yet; it's still officially winter. I, you know, it, it's not I guess officially spring till March twenty first. But even if it's not spring, you, you can kind of see it from here. So anyway, that was that was encouraging. 
Also, I wanted to say something too. I mentioned before that I just was finishing doing a uh, an edit, a podcast edit, and that's why I'm running a little bit late and didn't have as much time to prep here this week. Well, I had a very interesting conversation with a couple of gentlemen from Berean Beacon. Berean Beacon is an organization that was founded by the late Richard. Uh, Richard Bennett, uh, he had been a Roman Catholic priest, and uh, he was saved. He he left the church, and he founded this organization as a as an evangelistic and also as an apologetic organization. And it was very interesting to talk to uh, to the gentleman from uh, from Berean Beacon. I, I spoke with Greg Bentley, and I spoke also with Stuart Quint. They're both very smart, fine scholars, good writers, and they've actually spent the last couple of years tackling an, an aspect of this whole COVID pandemic that you very rarely hear. And that is, they talk. They've written specifically about the Jesuit involvement in in bringing this about. And we also talk some about the Great Reset as well. Very interesting conversation. There, you know, there are so few Christians that seem to uh, seem to get this. At least people who are out there publicly talking about it. And I think both Greg uh, Greg Bentley and Stuart Quinn have done some really exceptional work in this area. Uh, we also talk some about the the doctrine of Antichrist, the Reformed doctrine of Antichrist, that it it has historically identified the office of the papacy as Antichrist. That doctor is almost completely forgotten in today's church, even among people who are Bible-believing evangelicals. And this has put us at a serious disadvantage because all this stuff, you know, once you understand who the Antichrist really is, you can see him at work all over the place. You know, there are a lot of people that are always scanning the future for, for Antichrist. Well, what they don't realize, those people who believe that Antichrist is to come in the future, what they don't realize is that's actually some a a take on eschatology, a false take on eschatology that was originally propagated by the Jesuits. And these are the very people out here who are running this whole pandemic, or maybe call it a, uh, uh, I call it a pandemic or pandemic or scamdemic scam that has been foisted on us over the last two years. Uh, but people don't see it. They don't see this as the work of Antichrist, which is what it is. And the reason they don't see it is because they don't have a proper Reformed understanding of of end times, of what's called eschatology. Eschatology is just a Greek word. It means end times, uh, generally involving the study of Revelation. Of course, it's a little bit more than Revelation. But when you think about end time study, of course, naturally we would think about Revelation. Anyway, I don't want to go too far down that route, but I do want to say it was a very interesting conversation, and I'm going to put a link in the show notes once that, once that link's available. I don't think it's even up on, on the Trinity Foundation website yet to even have a link at this point. I, I just sent it over not too long long ago, and it's probably not up. I have it checked. But once I do see it, I will put a link to that conversation show notes. And I think you'll find it pretty interesting. I say it was, it certainly was, was interesting and informative to me as well. So anyway, there's, there was that going on today. I was busy with that. Uh, what I wanted to talk about here today, and this is kind of the well, you can tell from the title here, I want to talk about the, the current conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Obviously, that was the big news of the week this past week was the, the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine. I think was that start on Thursday? Was that Wednesday or Thursday? I, I can't remember now. But that has been all in the news and deservedly so. And, you know, there's an old saying, I got my title from this old saying, there's an old saying that, that truth is the first casualty of war. And we saw an example of that. For instance, I was watching, I uh, saw a little bit of Sean Hannity on, on Thursday night, 
And he was repeating a story that I had heard earlier in the day. It was a story about these 13 Ukrainian soldiers on this, this island called Snake Island. And I guess apparently they were confronted with a Russian warship. And the warship told them, you know, we're going we're gonna, to uh, attack your position, you know, surrender now or, or you're going to be killed. And supposedly these Ukrainian soldiers told uh, the Russian ship, you know, no, we're not going to surrender. And, and they died. And, and this was being... Um, circulated in the news media as, oh, you know, this is a great heroic act by these Ukraine, brave Ukrainian soldiers who stood up against the Russians, even though the odds were against them and, and they lost their lives you know, for their country. And that's how Sean Hannity reported it. Well, is interesting today, or I should say it was on Saturday, I believe. But yeah, it was Saturday, the 26th, that this there was this discussion that I, that I saw out there. And apparently it's it's been confirmed, although who knows with war, I mean, these things can always change, but apparently it, that's not how it happened. Apparently these 13 soldiers actually did surrender and they're alive, you know, and I'm glad for their sake that, that they are alive. Um, but it just goes to show you how quickly you know, reports can, uh, can, can be put forth and seized upon as news and truth, and then later, oh, well, it, it, it wasn't exactly that way. So truth is the first casualty of war. And there was an example of it right there. Now, I have a little bit of connection with Ukraine. I want to, want to show you something here if you're watching on the, uh, the podcast. I don't know if you can see this. This is a coffee mug. And you may recognize that there's a, one of the, uh, the pictures on there. It's, it's a church in uh, Kiev, or Kiev, as, as they're saying it now. It's uh, St. Sophia's uh, Orthodox Church there in, in Kiev. And I, I picked that mug up when I was was in Ukraine back in 2004. I had a, a wonderful opportunity to go over with my church, and we actually did a short-term mission trip in the summer of 2004 in Ukraine. Basically, what we did is we held a essentially a vacation Bible school for a church, a, a Baptist church in in Western Ukraine. It was a, a wonderful and amazing experience. It was really one of the the highlights. You know, when I talk about things that I you know, memorable trips in that. I mean, that was that was just amazing to me to go over to Ukraine. You know, I I never. I guess the first thing was just the fact that I was even there. I mean, I have talked about this some on the podcast. You know, I grew up during the Cold War. I was born in 1960. So I grew up in the 70s and the 80s, you know, and I remember watching on TV, you know, they'd have these Soviet military parades, you know, and they'd have all these guys, you know, marching past the review stand there by the Kremlin. And, you know, there's Leonid Brezhnev and all of his generals and, you know, Politburo chiefs or whoever these guys were all standing there looking very serious and looking down and, you know, as the, the troops and the tanks and the missiles and all this would go by. And, you know, it was all, it was pretty scary. You know, there was always this talk of, of nuclear war and, you know, uh, there's SALT negotiations. I think SALT stood for Strategic Arms Limitations Treaty. And there was talk about the free world and, and the Soviet bloc. And, and I just remember, you know, all the language of, of the Cold War because it was everywhere. I mean, and I, I grew up in that period and anybody who, who grew up in that time knows exactly what I'm talking about. And, and these are things we don't hear anymore. In fact, it was interesting. I was watching, when I was watching that bit of Sean Hannity the other day, he used the term free world. I hadn't heard anybody use the term free world to describe the West in forever. You know, now maybe back back in the day, maybe there was some truth to that, although I, I'm not really sure how free the free world is anymore with all the uh, the censorship and, and all and, and whatnot that uh, has been 
uh, foisted on us, particularly over the last two years with COVID, but but even before that. So I, I was in Ukraine. I was in Ukraine here for about a week. That doesn't make me an expert on Ukraine. I'm not claiming that I'm an expert on Ukraine. But yeah, I know a little bit about it, and really just as someone who considers himself a, a bit of a student of current affairs, of foreign policy, that type of thing, I think I also have have some knowledge just because of, of reading and that that I've done over the years. And, you know, another thing I think is very interesting, before I, I get off and, and talk too much about the, the current conflict, is, is pronunciations. And I, I've said this before, and this is a real pet peeve and annoyance of mine. It seems like every time a particular location gets in the news, the standard pronunciation of, of a particular place always shifts. Like when, when the United States, when the U.S. went into Afghanistan back in the early 2000s, I had always heard in all the news broadcasts, they always talked about the capital of Afghanistan was Kabul. It was Kabul, 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 with the, the, the accent being on the last syllable. Then all of a sudden, when the Afghan war started, it suddenly became Kabul. You know, with the accent on the first syllable, you know, and it's like, you fool, how can you be such a, a hillbilly from flyover country and say Kabul? All the cool kids say Kabul, you know, and, and so somewhere that, that shifted, you know, and all of a sudden it became like, like the inside cool kid thing to say, to say Kabul. And it's the same thing that's going on with Kiev. Uh, you know, when I was growing up, it was always pronounced Kiev, you know, two syllables, Kiev, uh, with sort of an emphasis on the last syllable. Now, all the news reporters, they say Kiev. You know, just just one uh, one single syllable as though it were spelled K-E-E-V, Kiev. That's the way they say it. Now, I think it's interesting looking at at the uh, the mug that I have here. Yeah, you can't see it because it's too small the way it, it's written here, but it's actually spelled K-I-E-V, Kiev, which is the standard way of, of spelling it and, and pronouncing it that I always saw growing up. And now it's spelled K-Y. KYV or KYIV or KYEV, something like that. And it's pronounced Kiev. And I guess that's the, the, the cool kid pronunciation of, of Kiev. So if you go around saying Kiev, I guess that means you're some hillbilly from flyover country. And if you want to be a cool kid and be in the in crowd, you say Kiev. Uh, I'm going to be stubborn. I'm going to say Kiev just to be stubborn, just to be a hillbilly from flyover country, I guess. Anyway, uh, so, so that having been said, um, you know, with, with all the coverage, you know, that, you know, that you see in the press, and it doesn't matter where you, where you watch, you can go to the New York Times, you can go to CNN, you know, liberal outlets, you can go to conservative outlets such as, say, Fox News or uh, other you know, conservative you know, news outlets, Republican news outlets. There's pretty much only one acceptable narrative, and that is 100% pro-Ukraine and fully against Russia. You know, Ukraine is... Can, uh, has never done and can do no wrong. Russia is the black hat, Vladimir Putin. You know, they call him Pitler. You know, I guess some combination of, of Putin and Hitler. I, I saw that today, for example. Uh, some writer had, had put that on Twitter. And, and, and this is the only acceptable opinion. You know, and, and this is where we've gotten to in, in the so-called free West. You know, we have an acceptable opinion. You, know, you think back about what Justin Trudeau said about the truckers, you know, when the, the trucker convoy was still in the process of, of heading east. You know, they hadn't even gotten to Ottawa yet. This was in late January. And he said, well, you know, these, these people, they have unacceptable opinions. They're the unacceptables. You know, they're the same kind of uh, a similar kind of term to what, uh, what Hillary Clinton used for, to describe Trump supporters back in 2016. You know, she called them deplorables. 
And I, I guess maybe the deplorables are also unacceptables. And the unacceptables are also deplorables. <laughs> so we're all kind of the same sort of people. You know, we have opinions that aren't popular with the ruling class. And the ruling class is going to make darn sure that those opinions are not given a hearing. Or they're certainly going to do their best to make sure that they don't. And, of course, that's why everybody's getting kicked off of YouTube and Facebook and Twitter and, and all of this stuff. Because they, they want to enforce the establishment narrative. But, you know, there's a lot of problems with the establishment narrative. And I, I just, I've got, got a, a few things I'd like to ask you about. For example, did you know that the U.S. under Obama overthrew the democratically elected government of Ukraine, Ukraine in 2014? It was during the Sochi Olympics that they had this thing called the Maidan Revolution. And this revolution was sponsored by the United States government. They were deeply involved in that. Had it not been for U.S. involvement, I think it's safe to say that that government would not have been been overthrown. Now, you hear all this talk about democracy, democracy, democracy. You know, I mean, these people, they, they, they can't, they can't stop talking about democracy. And yet the U.S. government, the very people that rep, you know, uh, of the, the U.S. federal government, the State Department, etc., who like to endlessly talk about democracy, overthrew the democratically elected government of Ukraine and installed a, a, a U.S.-friendly puppet government, which is still in place today. Did you know that the uh, the rebel forces that the U.S. backed in 2014 had significant neo-Nazi ties? There is a, a long history of Nazism in, in Ukraine, particularly in, in Western Ukraine. In fact, during World War II, there was an entire uh, army of, of Ukrainians that, that joined with, with, the, uh, with the German army and, and fought against Russia. And there's also significant, from, from what I've read and from what I consider reliable sources, there's a significant neo-Nazi presence in the current Ukrainian government. But again, that's not something that's reported on the evening news. You won't find that in, in mainstream news reporting. Did you know that George Soros was part of the 20, uh, 2014 overthrow of the democratically elected government of Ukraine? Now, you have to ask yourself, when was the last time George Soros was was a good guy? Now, I, I don't remember George Soros ever being on the right side of anything. Uh, I mean, the man is is uh, is a pretty evil fellow, and and if George Soros is operating um, for a particular cause, I think it's fairly safe to say it's probably an evil cause. But yes, George Soros was involved in the the overthrow of. Uh, of the Ukrainian government. Um, John McCain was actually over there egging on the, the overthrow of the Ukrainian government. And again, John McCain is not somebody that, that I have, uh, whose views I have a lot of regard for either. You know, sometimes it's, it's presented as, oh, you know, it's, it's something that, you know, that, you know, mega conservative Republicans should be supporting Ukraine and all this. Well, there's a lot of very good reasons not to do that. But let's continue. Did you know that the Ukrainian military, equipped by the U.S., has been shelling ethnically Russian civilians in the Donbass region since then? You may have heard this term, the Donbass. What that refers to, there's a couple of, there's an area in far eastern Ukraine. Ukraine borders directly on Russia. And in the far eastern part of, of Ukraine, they... Uh, 
there is a, a substantial, maybe even a majority of people that live there are actually ethnically Russian. They speak Russian. And they have have wanted to to get out of Ukraine. And they have been continually attacked since 2014. And the, the Ukrainian military has shelled this particular area. And it's killed a lot of civilians. And again, they've been doing this with, uh, with USAID. Did you know that contrary to the promises at the end of the Cold War, the U.S. has pushed NATO eastward, and that if Ukraine were to become a part of NATO, this would allow for forward military bases and potentially missiles, even nuclear missiles, right on Russia's border. You know, when, when the... Uh, when the Cold War was ending, you know, there was, you know, you remember, you may recall me, I remember this very well. It's very interesting. It was in the, I think it was in December, certainly it was in the, the fall, late fall or so in 1989. I was still a student at the University of Cincinnati. And interestingly enough, I was studying German at the time. And this was when the Berlin Wall fell. And it was seemed unbelievable at the time, you know, that this could actually happen. It was unthinkable. And, and it was a really joyous time for some of the German students who were there in, in the, the German department. And, and as, as well, it should have been. I mean, that was a, that was a terrible thing that was was inflicted on Germany, and and it was it was a wonderful thing to see that fall. I, I never thought in my lifetime I would see that, but you know, sometimes, you know, it, it can you know things that seem like they can never happen all of a sudden do, and that was an amazing thing to watch. But you know, as part of the reunification of Germany, there were promises made to uh, to Mikhail Gorbachev that. NATO would not move one inch to the east. Well, I mean, NATO has, in su- subsequent to that, well, you know, NATO has, has, has broken those promises, and NATO has continually moved east. And it's to the point where the, there's been a concerted effort recently to bring Ukraine in, into NATO. And this has been a source of serious concern to Russia. And if you stop and think about it, that's not an unreasonable position to have. Now, I wasn't alive during the Cuban Missile Crisis, but my parents were, and I've, I've heard them talk about that. And I, I remember mom especially, you know, talking about, you know, she knew where she was and, and remembered, remember those days. And there was real concern uh, among people that they could be nuked at any moment because they parked, these missiles were parked 90 miles off the U.S. coast in Cuba. Things were very tense. And that's really the closest analogy that there is to what NATO, what the U.S. has um, proposed doing, or certainly setting themselves up to be able to do in the future, is put uh, nuclear missiles right on Russia's border. Now, I remember a few weeks ago, I, I talked about the, the foreign policy of... of uh, of Millard Fillmore and how Millard Fillmore said that the golden rule should have a, a, uh, a political as well as a personal application. And Millard Fillmore was exactly right. You know, what Millard Fillmore was saying is that we should, as, as Americans, we should treat other nations with the same uh, concern, the, the, with the same deference, with the same, uh, Respect, maybe that's the, the right word. We should accord them the same respect, the same consideration that we would expect them to to show to us. And as Americans, I mean, would would you or I be comfortable if if the Russians 
park missiles in, in Cuba again, or let's say Russia came and fomented a revolution in Mexico and installed a, a pro-Russian government in Mexico and you know, threatened to, say, put Russian military bases or Russian missiles in Mexico. I mean, you know, as, as Americans, we would look at that and we would say, you know, that doesn't make us feel very secure. In fact, that's a real threat. We would perceive that as a threat. And I think rightfully so. And in the same way, I think Russia perceives U.S. military bases or potential military bases in Ukraine the same way. And again, I don't think that's unreasonable for them to, to, to take that stance. Did you know that Russia has tried for years to come to a diplomatic solution to this whole crisis in Ukraine? And has made their concerns known to the U- to U.S. and to to other NATO members, and that the U.S. and in NATO has has refused to even consider their concerns. And in fact, it, it's really gotten bad here over the past uh, couple months, to the point where I mean, in, in my opinion, it really almost appears that the the Biden regime has has wanted to uh, to provoke a war. Uh, with Russia, I mean that, that that's how it looks to me anyway, because they have been so aggressive in in their retorts and in their stance toward Russia. Every time Russia has expressed a concern, the U.S. has doubled down on the provocations. So the uh, the truth is, this conflict that we have going on right now with Russia is entirely avoidable. But it's come about principally because the United States is and has for a very long time pursued an interventionist foreign policy in which the U.S. says, well, we're the exceptional nation and we have a right to tell the rest of the world how to live. Now, that's a special sort of megalomania. You know, I've talked some, I've done some videos on a book that John Roberts wrote called Ecclesiastical Megalomania. And he's talking about the economic and political thought of the Roman Catholic Church. And of course, the Pope and the, the whole, uh, magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church has a serious case of megalomania. I mean, they think they have a right to rule the world. Well, you know, there are a lot of people in the American foreign policy establishment that think the same thing. They think they have a right to rule the world. Uh, by force, you know, and if somebody says no to them, well, they're going to find some way to, if necessary, apply force to get them out of the way. There was a a piece that I saw, and this was written by uh, by Daniel McAdams. If you're familiar, if you ever watch Ron Paul's Liberty Report, you probably know Daniel McAdams. He's Ron Paul's co- co-host. And uh, Daniel McAdams has written, he's, I guess you would, you would really call him sort of an expert on foreign policy. That's uh, really a strong suit of his. And he writes very well on the subject. And he's got a piece, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and do a, a screen share here. Just a moment. Well, that's not what I wanted to do. Let me try that again. Got to get this right. I'm going to get it here. I'm going to make this happen. There we go. Okay, yeah, there we go. Here's the piece in, this is in, this is on the, uh, blow that up a little bit here. Yeah, this is on the Ron Paul uh, Institute website. And the, the title of it is called Washington's Crocodile Tears Over Ukraine, Ukraine's Destruction. And he says, as of this writing, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has hunkered down in his bunker somewhere in Kiev 
As the sound of encroaching war gets closer and closer, a grim scene to be sure. And let's see here. He says, uh, this, is, this is what McAdams says. He says, Zelensky has now learned the bitter truth, which previously favored foreign leaders also learned. Most of their lessons have been even harder than Zelensky's, at least to this point. The bitter truth is that Washington's foreign policy established never actually considered Zelensky or his predecessor Poroshenko to be allies or partners of the United States. Overflowing with a toxic mix of ignorance, arrogance, and extreme cynicism, Washington's elites have always viewed Ukraine as a tool to regime change a Russia that, after its post-Yeltsin recovery, would no longer take its direction from them. The false gods of American exceptionalism are jealous ones indeed. And let's see what else he has here. Uh, Oh, he says uh, this. Most Americans will not have heard, and those who have likely do not care, that twice, twice, when the Ukrainian people elected a president who was in favor of maintaining good relations with its Russian neighbor, the U.S. intervened and overthrew the government. First time in 2004-2005 Orange Revolution, and then the fateful 2014 Maidan Revolt, which was explicitly and overtly supported by senior U.S. government officials on the ground, including Victoria Nuland and the late neocon warmonger Senator John McCain. Yeah, Victoria Nuland, she was a high-ranking official in the Obama administration State Department. And she was actually caught on the phone um, basically handpicking the, the new government for Ukraine once, uh, once the, the, the uh, current government was overthrown. I mean, there's, there's no question that, that the State Department was deeply involved with this. And I'm sure some other aspects of, of the U.S. government as well. Uh, but uh, certainly the State Department was. In the meantime, tens of millions of dollars flow from the U.S. taxpayer to favored think tanks, civic organizations, and media outlets via the National Endowment for Democracy and numerous U.S.-funded related organizations. The goal is the same, manipulate Ukraine so that it remains on Washington's preferred path toward conflict with Russia. So, I mean, what the U.S. has done over the past almost 20 years now is basically use... Uh, use Ukraine as an attack dog. Use it as a battering ram to attack Russia. That's that's what the U.S. has been doing. Now you hear all this stuff. Oh, Ukraine, Ukraine, Ukraine. You know we're we're all in favor of Ukraine. You've got these people raving raving Ukrainian flags. What's not told to people is that the U- U.S. government has cynically used Ukraine and the people of Ukraine to attack Russia. And, and this has been explicitly against the, the will of the voters of Ukraine who have voted to install governments that were, uh, that took a favorable stance to Russia, or at least a, a peaceful stance to Russia. They wanted good relations with Russia. We didn't want that. The United States did not want that. You know, and so now when, when Russia's hitting back, you know, who's taking the blow for this? Well, the people of Ukraine who have had twice had their democratically elected government overthrown and had a, a U.S. puppet installed. And let's see what else uh, Daniel McAdams has to say here. I'll just read the Concluding paragraphs in his article, he says this, this is Daniel McAdams, whether America and the EU like it or not, the era of we're an empire now and when we act, we create our own reality is well and truly over. Now, that quote that Daniel McAdams has there 
quote, we're well... We're an empire now, and when we act, we create our own reality, end quote. That was a quote that has been attributed to, um, oh, goodness, what's his name? Carl, yeah, I should, for some reason, I'm getting, uh, I'm drawing a blank here. Here's the guy, he was, he was, uh, here's George Bush's chief of staff, Carl Rove. Yeah, Carl Rove, and I, I think it was Carl Rove who said that. And that's always been kind of held up as, as sort of a, a supreme example of uh, imperial arrogance. And I think that's correct to, to view it that way. That's a very arrogant statement uh, that, that he made there. And Danny McAdams continues. He says, its end is not to be mourned. That is, the end of the U.S. empire is not to be mourned but celebrated. The only pro-American foreign policy is non-intervention in the affairs of others. And that's exactly right. Non-intervention is the historic... Uh, American foreign policy that goes all the way back to the founding fathers, all the way back to George Washington, um, and in all of the early uh, presidents and and intellectuals and thinkers uh, of the United States, they all, as far as I know, to a man, held the idea that it's not the job of the United States to be involved in foreign wars. That, by the way, is also not only is it a historically American, but it is a I believe a a a, uh, a Christian. Foreign policy. I think that can be biblically proven uh, as well. I mean, when you look in the Old Testament, you know, you think about this. You know, Israel wasn't told to go and interfere in all the affairs of its neighbors. Now, I mean, Israel had they had the covenant, they had the word of God, they had the prophets, they had the temple, and you know, they could have said, "Well, you know, we've got this temple, we've got the prophets, we have." Um, all the blessings of God, and we're going to go impose this on all those those heathen Egyptians or, or those heathen, you know, all these other these heathen nations. But I mean, Israel's job really was to take the promised land, take the take the land of Canaan, and to dwell there and to mind their own business. I mean, minding your own business is one of the real principles of a Christian foreign policy. But that's not the uh, that's not the stance that that our leaders like to take. And in fact, there's a couple of really good articles out there on the Trinity Foundation website that were written by John Robbins in the the early 1990s. And this was when the the first Gulf War was was gearing up uh, way back in 1990. And a couple of really good articles. And I think I would like to put those. I'm not going to read them here to this evening just due to time. But they're great articles, and I would really encourage you to read them if you want to get a sense of not only the false thinking that that then and now really uh, has captivated the American foreign policy establishment, but also get an example of uh, where he talks about what a Christian foreign policy looks like. So anyway, let's continue here with Daniel McAdams. Ukrainian President Zelensky is unlikely to survive his turn being America's cat's paw to wrong-foot Russia. While he sits in his bunker contemplating his fate, he may well be visited by the ghosts of Saddam and Gaddafi and all those who preceded him in this position. God help him. So that's that's Daniel McAdams' assessment of uh, of the situation. Again, I'm going to put that uh, put a link to that. A particular article in the show notes as well. Well, that's all I have here for you this evening. I know it's a little bit short, but you know, time being as it was, I that's uh, that's the most that I can do here this evening. I got to get this edited and get this posted as well. Thanks so much for joining me tonight. I really appreciate that, and I look forward to seeing you again next week. Until then, may the spirit of truth guide you in all truth as you read and study God's word. <laughs>